Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, Sam's name is Sam, and we are back to talk about Barbenheimer. Hello. (laughs) It's uh, it's been a little while since you've been on the show. Yeah, it's been been like almost six months at this point, right? Where's the last episode we did together? Um, Yeah, it was probably... No, because we did uh, the Succession premiere this season. We did. Oh, we did. So that was March, right? That was that was Marchish. Yeah. So it's yeah. been it's been like four or five months. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a while. It's interesting because like it, this used to be every week, and now it's every other week, and that has you know given me sort of a warped idea of how long there is between episodes. Yeah. Because I'm sure if you looked at it, the Succession episode was probably like less than ten episodes ago, but that means it was you know a while. <laughs> yeah. That's a long time. Since we're talking about new release films, uh, this feels like a good time to sort of address the ongoing SAG and WGA strikes at the time of our recording. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of confusion out there about about sort of the, the, the role that different creators play, and especially, you know, people who post about things online, people who make podcasts, for instance, and it, it's reasonable for there to be confusion because these things largely didn't exist the last time these strikes were happening. The The whole media landscape has changed, and that's why it's important mm-hmm. to have these strikes. Um, so things are shifting a little bit, and there are things to sort of keep track of. But the, the long and short of it is, you know, reviews and criticism and that sort of thing are not promotion, even if they are positive. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's important that for me to put it out there that we're thinking about these things. But... Um, you know, even if we came on here and we were like, this is so good, everyone has to see it, that wouldn't necessarily be promotion because we are not doing it on behalf of the studios. However, it's, you know, not the sort of shop stick, so we're not going to do that sort of thing anyway. Like, um, like um, we, we, we would probably do some kind of Riverdale update up top for this mm-hmm. episode, and we still could, but uh, maybe not mm-hmm. in the spirit of things. Yeah. Uh, especially since we'd, we'd basically be encouraging people to watch it in that case. Yeah, like, it's, it's a hard time <laughs> to watch. Yeah, that's, and that's also why the, the VMA nominations came out today. I won't be talking about that. Uh, we're just going to sort of get into it. And these are yeah. movies that um, are, are on everyone's mind right now. Everyone's talking about this sort of double feature thing. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that's that I find sort of interesting about it is that, like... The, these movies were being talked about together even before it came out that they were coming out on the same day. But the idea of them as a double feature feels like, like it feels like suddenly people were like, OK, so how are we going to what's the plan for seeing them on the same day? Mm-hmm. Like like that was sort of taken as a given in a way that I really I, I, I think it's cool for from the perspective of like the the film industry. But I I, I, I sort of don't know where that came from. Yeah, I, I was trying to remember that because I. Saw, I remember like seeing a tweet, you know, whenever it was announced they were coming out the same day, which at this point was like a year and a half ago, I feel like, that, you know, was like, oh, this is going to be the greatest, um, like, face-off ever. And it was kind of like, I didn't really understand why either of these would be like crazy appealing to film Twitter, honestly. Um, apologies if you hear jingling in my audio recording. 
Um, <laughs> that's your that's your imp. That's your fool. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of a creature running around the room right now. Um, so hopefully he'll turn it down. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know where the double feature originally came from. It's a great idea. It's very fun. It's very like kind of old fashioned almost. You know, like it feels very like 1940s movie theater culture in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I I as always I've prepared. Some extensive notes and found some really fun stuff. And um, we could just get into it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'd like to know sort of like what your like 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 what, what we think of these movies, first of all, yeah. just like a blanket thing, but also sort of how you approach them, how you sort of came to, <laughs> you, you know, what your relationship is, like the filmmakers and that sort of thing, the, the material. Yeah, I it's funny because I was very curious about both of these movies because I I actually famously dislike both Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig. Um, mm. They're two people that like I don't generally rock with their movies. Like they're just not super interesting to me. But I, you know, Oppenheimer is someone that I don't know that much about, but I am kind of very academically interested in like the kind of immediately post-World War II like you know, American surveillance state and like the anti-communist stuff and all that stuff, which I didn't realize was going to be in the movie. Um, and Barbie, I have a very weird relationship too, because I didn't own a single doll growing up. Uh, you know, mm. I was like the gay little kid, uh, didn't have any. My mom was kind of a tomboy, so I didn't have any. But I was really curious about it because I am a really big fan of like Camp Hollywood and movie musicals and old Hollywood and was really excited about it. Um I think I thought that I would be a lot hotter on Barbie than I would be on Oppenheimer, which is actually the opposite of how I came out of the theater. Um, That's Mm. kind of my cold read is that I've been thinking about Oppenheimer kind of nonstop and Barbie has been frustrating me, I would say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, for me, it's like it's interesting to think about my relationship to to both those things i guess from from the perspective of oppenheimer he's one of those figures that like you sort of know by name but yeah. you know i wouldn't have known his, his specific story if not for this movie um but of course again like you said i think that that era of american culture is very fascinating and um there's you know as as a country we're always sort of reckoning with what we did <laughs> and and sort of the, the the impact of of creating and, and deploying those bombs. Um so 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 that's something that feels very present to me. And Barbie is this interesting sort of I mean, we both grew up in the post Lisa versus Malibu Stacy era yes. of like, you know no no one's into no no one was like uncritically into Barbie when we were when we were coming of age, I yeah. feel like. Yeah, it's, I, I remember people being uncritically into, like, American Girl dolls, but Barbie felt very mm-hmm. old-fashioned. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. So, yeah, and and I guess going into these movies, I had this back-and-forth thing where, like, I'm also not that into Nolan, and I've been... I'm not not into Gerwig, but I'm, like, waiting for the, the right Gerwig movie to come <laughs> along. And, and I, I sort of went into it, like... Like like Oppenheimer seems like a really a really solid kind of drama, and I don't know if it's going to be my favorite thing because I don't always like the Nolan thing. Um, and then Barbie is like my preferred type of movie in so many ways. Like I, yeah. I I like that it's it's 
it's this kind of you know big idea stoner comedy bright colors thing um and i i what what took me by surprise a little bit was that i came out finding these movies more similar Mm. than i expected i i sort of i thought the double feature thing was going to be like a little bit of a bust for a lot of people but but i i I came out feeling like there's a lot of themes underwriting these and i started to think about like where gerwig and nolan were and what what these movies do for their careers um and uh i do think oppenheimer i like oppenheimer more i think they're both sort of fundamentally fraught uh because of their perspective and their subject matter in ways that we can get into Mm -hmm. uh to me barbie is like is easily gerwig's best movie and oppenheimer is easily nolan's best movie yeah yeah i don't know there i i have a lot of thoughts on both of these movies so i think it'll be a, a, a fun topic I think we both have a lot of thoughts. I'm I'm very curious to talk about the overlap of the two films because I've also kind of been thinking of them as like very in conversation in a way that mm-hmm. I was not expecting. Um, so, absolutely. Yeah. So I've sort of taken on this Oppenheimer style project with <laughs> the uh, with the notes here. I've developed <laughs> a, a sort of unified timeline uh, mm-hmm. with a with a with a big tangent in the middle. Um, <laughs> 2005. American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer is released, written by Kai Bird and Martin, Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Mm-hmm. Martin Sherwin started writing this biography in the 70s. He talked to Hawk and Chevalier. He talked to Oppenheimer's son. He got like 50,000 pages of like research and interviews and all this stuff. And he just couldn't get it together. And there, um, among historians, there's this idea that that he fell victim to the curse of Oppenheimer. That, that is just a guy that, like, if you try to if you try to crack him, it's not going to work. Um, but then in the 90s, he he's he, he has his friend Kai Bird, this younger historian, and he's like, "Do you want to help me finish this?" And another six years of work later, it actually comes out. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there there are ways in which both. Like, like Oppenheimer and like development of Barbie is pretty continuous from 2009 and as soon as American Prometheus comes out Sam Mendes is like I want to make this into a movie mm-hmm. um so there's like 15 years a piece on these but it's also like in certain ways if you think about the trajectory of like trying to bring Barbie into like film and tv and the trajectory of like trying to make this biography of Oppenheimer you can draw them all the way back to like late 70s early 80s mm-hmm. sam mendez at the time just about to put out jarhead he's like i really want to do an oppenheimer movie and it sort of sits in development for a couple years never materializes and then the rights just get passed around to different producers for most of the like 15 years after that interesting as it often happens 2009 Pretty closely following the success of the Transformers franchise, Mattel gets into the movie business. They, I, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get into the stuff about Barbie. I think there's so many things in like the the process of Barbie and how it came to be that that are are so fucked up in all these ways. Um, <laughs> Mattel gets into movies. They set up He Man at Sony, Hot Wheels at Warner Brothers, Max Steel at Paramount. Major Matt Mason at Universal, an original live-action musical with an accompanying monster toy line at Universal. That monster toy line becomes Monster High. And then they also do Barbie at Universal. And the thing is, like, out of those movies, Monster High 
movie comes out last year on Paramount Plus. Max Steel comes out as an indie movie in 2016. The rest of them are still in development. Oh my God. <laughs> Continuously. Um, Barbie movie set up at Universal, produced by Lawrence Mark, who had done like Julie and Julia that year. Dream Girls, Riding in Cars with Boys. Uh, Working Girl, Going Way Back, Romy and Michelle. Very prolific wow. producer. Lots of bangers. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of girl movies on that list. That feels like a fitting a lot of girl movies. Barbie. True, true. He also did like Jerry Maguire. He 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 branched out a little bit. In many ways, Jerry Maguire is a girl movie as well. It's true. It's true. <laughs> what do you really think about it? Yeah. Um So and before that, Barbie had had, you know, thirty plus animated movies. Mm-hmm. Um there was this whole thing when when Barbie appeared in Toy Story, that was something that like Mattel really didn't want to do, but like I think that more than anything else in the 90s and 2000s, that was something that sort of like refreshed the Barbie brand. Mm, Interesting. That's 2009. That's when things get set up. And then five years later, (laughs) after a stalled development, Amy Pascal strikes a deal to bring Barbie over to Sony. And when I hear Sony and 2014, I I think about the emails. (laughs) I forgot about the emails! The last time we talked about the Sony emails on this podcast was three episodes ago. <laughs> I cannot stop going back. Um, but the thing is, at the time the Sony emails got leaked, the, the the existence of this Barbie movie was not so much on people's radars. So I had to read through hundreds of Sony emails myself. <laughs> oh, you really did go in for this? About Barbie, and I have a lot of findings from it um, that we can jump into. Yes, 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 please. I want to see them. So February 2014, days after the Lego movie comes out, a Sony animation executive meets with Mattel. (laughs) To follow up on our meeting on Friday, I met with the team at Mattel regarding an animated Barbie movie, and they are very much on board to do an irreverent, clever version. They feel it is the only way for a Barbie feature to work. They completely agree it needs to be creator-driven. They were also very inspired by the Lego movie. Tonally, Tina Fey is their ideal, and we discuss names like Paula Pell and Katie Dippold. 2014 was such a different time. There's there's so much more here to talk about, but like, Amy Pascal says, Tina is perfect, maybe she can do it with Amy Poehler. They're constantly throwing Tina Fey and Amy Poehler at this thing. Um, in, in, in March, uh, Amy Pascal emails her assistant, quote, I want to call Tina Fey and Amy Poehler today. <laughs> <laughs> An executive says, Amy Pascal, the link to a study in which 66% of young people said Barbie is a bad influence on children. Quote, either now is a tricky time to get involved, or they're really in need of great modern strong female voices like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. <laughs> like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I would pay any amount of money to see Tina Fey's version of Barbie. Honestly. <laughs> like they're 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 getting they're letting Lena Dunham do the, the Polly Pocket movie. I feel like they gotta they gotta they gotta throw Tina at one of these. I want I so badly want Lena Dunham's Polly Pocket movie to be like a really bitter parody of the Barbie movie. <laughs> I wanted to be hateful. I wanted yeah. to be hateful. Yeah, like I just saw um, Shortcomings, the Randall Park movie, and the first scene of that movie is like a, a crazy pot shot at Crazy Rich Asians. I'm like, th- this bitterness is what I need. <laughs> uh, Walter Parks, a producer who comes onto the project around the same time, he meets with Mattel 
And he's proposing something different from what Sony had proposed up to that point. But he kind of wants Sony to get in on it. He's proposing a live-action movie with a human protagonist. uh, uh, There's two protagonists. One of them is Barbie and the other is a woman named Maggie. And it would have the the comic self-awareness of the Lego movie in a live-action context. And he wanted it to be called uh, Plastic Fantastic rather than Barbie. Plastic Fantastic is a great name. Someone should pick that up as a band name, I think. It's pretty good. The idea was that, like, if they called it Barbie, men wouldn't go see it. And they were like, it, it's sort of, again, it's this very 2014 thing where it's like any, and this is so indicative of Sony at the time, especially where they're doing, like, Ghostbusters and the Men in Black Jump Street crossover. It's like, anything we can do, we need to turn it into uh, a Judd Apatow movie. <laughs> Oh, God. It's, it's just, it's such a long time ago. The kind of directors we're thinking are Paul Feig, Will Gluck, David Frankel, etc. As far as who could play Barbie, probably an ingenue. I like Margot Robbie, for instance, or possibly a Discovery. Maggie could be Kristen Wiig or Tina Fey or Amy Adams, many others too. I love the idea of going against Ted 2 on June 26 and playing through July 4th against Terminator. Family-friendly counter-programming with a lot of girl power. That's actually... So crazy that Margot Robbie was brought up that early. I think I kind of forgot that she would have been pretty prominent because, like, that was what right after Wolf of Wall Street, before Suicide Squad came out. Yeah, the, I mean, later in this in this you know extended email conversation, someone's like, "We have all these ideas. Maggie could be anyone, but like the only person we have in mind for Barbie is Margot Robbie." And that there's there's like one email in March where someone there's an email from March where the subject line is Barbie and the text is blonde girl from Glee looks just like her. <laughs> Brittany from Glee. <laughs> oh girl, she couldn't. She doesn't have that star power. <laughs> she does not. She's the only other person mentioned. <laughs> God. When you said Ted too, I thought they were gonna suggest like Amanda Seyfried, and like that would almost make like more sense. A little bit. Uh, <laughs> she's blonde, I guess. She's blonde and she's very skinny and has a crazy big eye. That's eyes. all they got. You know, so crazy. Yeah the the idea with Plastic Fantastic was that um, it it got compared to like Splash and Big. It would be like this, you know. This, this this sort of fantasy character coming into like like the real world and there's this a lot of stuff that actually does carry over into Barbie which I think we see in a lot of the 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 story here where like it kind of seems like by the time it got to Gerwig like they they talk about all the creative freedom they have but it seems like maybe the plot was something that was kind of shipped to them yeah I'm very curious about how much of this was actually already decided before Gerwig got there because you said Splash and that was like on her like official Barbie watch list too um Mm. it seems like Margot Robbie was you know already kind of decided which is also interesting given the line in the Barbie movie where you know she's like I'm getting ugly and then like Helen Mirren as the narrator comes says like note to studios this is a bad time to cast Margot Robbie in this role or whatever the line is Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. There's an interesting sort of progression there that we will get into. But I definitely, I mean, definitely by the time Gerwig and Baumbach start writing, it's already Margot Robbie. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, someone recommends Will Gluck to do Ghostbusters. Amy Pascal says he could do it. He could also do Barbie. By April, Jennifer Bix is writing the screenplay. 
She was most known for her work on Sex and the City. She went on to write The Greatest Showman, which was also produced by Lawrence Mark. Interesting. Let's see. Prior to a meeting with Mattel, Pascal has sent a compilation of evidence that Barbie has, quote, had a few months of not-so-great press this year. <laughs> There's, like, a, a viral thing in 2014 with a doll who's made to be, like, Barbie with the proportions of an actual woman. I remember this. <laughs> yeah. This was, like, this got circulated on Tumblr all the time. You used to see this yeah. around a lot. It's classic shit. Yeah. No, but there's also like a Cosmo article about the two people, the person who got a bunch of plastic surgery to look like Barbie and the one who got a lot of plastic surgery to look like Ken and how they hate each other. And the <laughs> Barbie woman is racist and the, the Ken guy <laughs> doesn't, doesn't fuck with it. it was <laughs> I also remember that. And there was also a thing with a Barbie campaign and like Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue that people didn't like. But when things are moving, Sony reaches out to Will Gluck. What they hear back is, quote, I think Will would do Barbie, but won't work with Walter Parks. Heard too much about him. That's interesting. <laughs> that was interesting to me. Walter Parks, nothing has come out about Walter Parks. He did kind of, he hasn't produced anything in a couple years, so it's possible that, like, something got kind of buried. But the, I mean, I was kind of looking for stuff. There, there's a point later where they're closing on Sandra Bullock to play the Maggie character. And, and, and Walter Parks comes in like, eh, Sandra Bullock too old. And like, I, I, I get, I get the vibe. <laughs> I get the vibe from Walter Parks just from reading these emails. <laughs> but I can't, I can't say for sure what, <laughs> what it is. You, you may have just broken the Walter Parks story nat- nationwide. Uh, yeah. Interest, interesting that his, uh, his bad vibes were enough to like derail this for another couple years. Yeah, and he's because he's the one who like brought this project to Sony. So so Amy Pascal's like, I guess we got to find someone else. <laughs> um, so she meets with Sandra Bullock about the Barbie movie, but also a, a movie that Sandra Bullock wants to do. That's like a divorce comedy. It's not clear what that was, and a Ryan Murphy film, One Hit Wonders. Did that ever end up coming out? I don't think so. <laughs> Ryan Murphy's Barbie is actually what I do want to see. That would actually yeah. be incredible. Yeah, they should they should have got Ryan on the horn. Um, <laughs> producers reach out to Marco Robbie. She is already interested, but she she says she wants to meet about it after she's done shooting Tarzan. <laughs> oh my god! A lot of blasts from the past here. Oh, here's here's where things get interesting. Laura McDonald, who is Walter Parks's like uh, producing partner, says. About Margaret Robbie, she is Barbie come to life. She'd be great. In New York, just had a great meeting with Amy Schumer, who I'm obsessed with. She is so brilliant. If we don't go with a big star, we think she could be a very cool choice for Maggie. That <laughs> is, you know, that is the most 2014 possible choice they could have been. Yeah. And this is this is where Amy Schumer comes into the project. She sticks around for a long time. This is what Walter Parks says, uh, you know, he, in addition to saying Sandra Bullock's too old, he's, he says Amy Schumer's good and also, like, less expensive celebrities like Rose Byrne or Kristen Wiig or Tina Fey once again. Amy Pascal gets an email, quote, Sean Levy, very interested in Barbie. He has four daughters. <laughs> four daughters. Oh, it, it comes up so many times as they're talking to Sean Levy. He's like, well, I have four daughters. <laughs> enough qualification and he's available (laughs) he's easy he's cheap and he puts them out he's doing night at the museum three at this time and he's uh, ready to roll night at the museum three underrated flick true 
the Barbie treatment from Jenny Bix is sent on June 27th. Uh, Sony executives, there's a bunch of emails here where it's like Tarantino sends them the Hateful Eight script and they get the first Barbie script at like the same time. So there's also mm. emails that are like, love the Tarantino script. Not so sure about this Barbie thing. <laughs> uh, here's from one from one executive. Barbie was pretty disappointing. It feels sitcom-y and broad. Need to do a better job of making us care about the characters. The ending is nice, but doesn't feel triumphant or especially earned. I have a lot of notes, but some of it boils down to the quality of the writing. We'll have to roll up our sleeves. Amy Pascal says it's the worst version that in my worst dreams it would be. <laughs> I'd say there's a moment or two. Other than that, a total wipeout, except for the idea. She sends a message to Walter Parks that says, My analysis, it's definitely a movie, but it's not a script. <laughs> that hateful but also it's really gross that might be what i would say about the current version of Barbie <laughs> right now. they they have these these really uncomfortable conversations about like you know we know we have to get a new writer we know jenny bix isn't up to the task we could have her do another draft even though we're not going to use it just to like let her down easy mm-hmm. crazy shit <laughs> You're, you're feeding me such beautiful gems from these emails. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to just, like, next time I have a day off, read through every Sony email ever published. <laughs> There's so much. I, I would give... We'll, we'll get into the... Because Warner Brothers in 2020 is very involved in this, too. And I'm like, a pandemic-era Warner Brothers leak, I would I would, I would would give anything for <laughs> If you're listening, please get in there. <laughs> Kim, if you're hearing this... Once they're done with Jenny Bix, uh, Walter Park says, should we see if Tina Fey wants to write? She's shooting, but I wonder when she'd be available. Someone says, I just had coffee with Sean Levy, who was really into the idea of our Barbie movie. P.S. He and Tina Fey have been trying to adapt Fancy Nancy, but hit a bit of a wall because that property isn't as well known and skews much younger. I think Sandy is the perfect Maggie, but Tina would be great and they could be a wonderful team on this. Interesting. I have no idea what Fancy Nancy is, and that obviously never came to fruition um yeah my i think my younger sibling like like had like fancy nancy stuff around it was definitely like a a a more recent property i don't know why sean levy and tina fey would be i mean maybe they like had kids and then it was like we're reading these books all the time it's like if someone wanted to do like a like a bluey adaptation now i guess Mm, yeah had kids rent was due any any number of reasons Mm -hmm. but by the end of september they're talking to Amy Poehler, Amy Schumer, and Diablo Cody. Oh, Diablo Cody would have been so good for this. Diablo Cody did an interview earlier this year about her experience when she was working on the Barbie movie. We'll get into that in a bit. Uh, from an email in October, we've also been exploring the possibilities of Diablo teaming up with Amy Poehler. They've been wanting to work together, or Tina Fey with Kay Cannon. Later that month, we are waiting to see if Tina wants to engage, the question being how long do we want to sit on slash push for that as it precludes other high-level submissions. If she passes, we want to engage with Noah Baumbach. <laughs> this early? Would this around the time that he had to do toy, uh, Madagascar 3 to pay for his divorce? Yeah, it would. it's like two years after that. Okay, so he's got his foot in the door for children's properties. Yeah, they want him. <laughs> They also mention uh, Lorraine Scafaria in that email, as well as uh, Mitch Hurwitz. 
at this time diablo cody is doing ricky in the flash so she is uh she's not interested two days later we heard a promising preliminary barbie pitch from burt royal yesterday he wants to thematically ground the movie with the idea of playing fair which could nicely resonate with adults and with kids he has a fun idea of starting the movie with Maggie as a kid, playing with her Barbie, which she accidentally leaves behind, washes out to sea. There's no obvious magical Zoltan moment, but when Barbie comes back into Maggie's life, she has uh, extra awareness and insight into her, having lived with her as a kid. He's reset the movie with Maggie running for mayor, with Barbie as her campaign manager. Uh, Maggie would start working for a Sigourney working girl mayoral candidate. <laughs> I don't know why working girl keeps coming up. <laughs> Working Girl, another movie that I also hate. Um, (laughs) Oh my god. It's a rich text we have here. This is a beautiful text. Barbie convinces her she has the chops to run for mayor herself against her former boss. The emphasis would be more on Maggie on the campaign trail than on politics with fun public appearances. And Barbie would help her dress better, communicate with her constituents, maybe a little Cyrano-type dynamic at first. (laughs) Barbie is like a feminist wizard is such an interesting way to read that. In November 2014, which is the last month that we have these emails, Amy Pascal worries that, quote, Barbie is in free fall without a writer in sight. So she reaches out to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the writer-director team behind the Lego movie, also behind, also the writers of the Spider-Verse movies, which we talked about three episodes ago. She has this idea of doing a crossover because they have the Barbie rights and the He-Man rights. And she's sort of she's sort of in this crossover mode right now because it's also the time of the 21 Jump Street Men in Black crossover, which Lord and Miller were, would be involved in. And she's like, is there something here with like Barbie and He-Man? Um, <laughs> and what Phil Lord says is, uh, quote, I, is there a Barbie v He-Man movie in there somewhere? It's a funny idea. If the Lego movie and its sequels didn't exist, it would be easier for it to feel original. (laughs) (laughs) At first blush, I would fear that a little bit that it steps on JSMIB, Jump Street Men in Black, and I can tell you that the Lego sequels will tread on similar territory. I'd say consider a live-action version of that, but Masters in the Right Hands could be a fantasy franchise, so you'd want to protect your ability to run with that. Why not get Lena Dunham to write a feminist Barbie movie? Listeners can't see my video, but my eyebrows just went up so high. <laughs> There's talk about the... I-, I saw a tweet earlier today about how, like, Phil Lord could come out and be like, there- there'd be no Barbie movie without me. But, <laughs> but-, but he doesn't, you know, want, want-, want to get in trouble. Um, and b- th- there's the fact that they did the Lego movie, but also, as we see from this email... It, it kind of seems like maybe Phil Lord got the wheels turning on on uh, directly on exactly what the Barbie movie turned out mm-hmm. to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Sony should run Phil Lord his check personally. <laughs> he, he, conv- he he convinced Pascal to drop the Barbie versus He Man idea primarily not to get in the way with the Jump Street versus Men in Black thing, and I want to do a quick comment on that because when Twenty Two Jump Street came out. I came out of that movie, I was like, if they do a third one, what's it going to be? And I was like, they should do a crossover with Men in Black, because it's another Sony thing that they're that they're trying to... to so I, I had that idea months before the Sony emails came out, and, and I felt so vindicated when they came out. But then, of course, because the emails came out, everyone was like, mm-hmm. they want to do a Jump Street and Men in Black crossover. It never happened. 
That movie would have been so perfect. I have been rooting for 23 Jump Street for like a decade at this point. Um, we but, need you it. Know, jo- Jonah Hill's persona not got it right now, but... Uh, yeah, they got to do like um, like MIB International, just get two totally different people to, to lead a Jump Street movie. I think they should still do the Men in Black Jump Street crossover and it should just be Channing Tatum and Will Smith. Perfect movie. Mm. Easy movie. That is a perfect movie, yeah. And the next Barbenheimer could be that and a more serious Channing Tatum and Will Smith movie. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be fun. Needless to say, as I said, talks for this version of the Barbie movie started immediately after the Lego movie came out. Also, Barbie sales happened to be plummeting around this time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 2015, New York investor J. David Wargo who studied physics at MIT, acquires the rights to American Prometheus. Meanwhile, over at Sony, Diablo Cody is brought on board to take a pass at the Barbie script. And here are some, just a few gems from Diablo Cody's recent interview with GQ about her her time on the Barbie movie. (laughs) I think I know why I shit the bed. When I was first hired for this, I think the culture had not yet embraced the femme or the bimbo as valid feminist archetypes yet. In 2014, taking this skinny blonde white doll and making her into a heroine was a tall order. Speaking on the early notion of casting Amy Schumer, Cody said, That idea of an anti-Barbie movie made a lot of sense given the feminist rhetoric of ten years ago. I didn't really have the freedom then to write something that was faithful to the iconography. They wanted a girl boss feminist twist on Barbie, and I couldn't figure it out because that's not what Barbie is. Oh, wow. That's so crazy. How could you ever make that movie? <laughs> that's crazy. I heard endless references to the Lego movie in development, she says, and it created a problem for me because they had done it so well. Anytime I came up with something meta, it was too much like what they had done. It was a roadblock for me, but now enough time has passed that they can just cast Will Ferrell as the antagonist and nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love her. Diablo, please, please get their asses. Um, speaking to why artists like Gerwig work on movies like Barbie... Cody said, quote, I understand why those artists have moved into that lane. I get it. The most successful movie that I've ever written was Juno, and that wouldn't get a theatrical release today. I wish every day that I could write the Paw Patrol movie, because credibility is not going to put my kids through college. I've made several swings at IP with Barbie and Powerpuff Girls, and I take full responsibility for the failures of those attempts because I do have a specific voice and POV, and I haven't figured out how to modulate it. And then a little later she says, Ultimately, you're selling toys. I mean, nobody really wants to delve into the deeper lore and mythos of Hungry Hungry Hippos. That's not really an artistic exercise. (laughs) so brave. He is so brave. Man. (laughs) We've done Jennifer's body on this podcast, but I always think about how much more we can do with Diablo Cody. He... I think, like, kind of flies under the radar a lot, like, despite having these movies that are, like, huge, I feel like, moments, um, you know, Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. Juno and Jennifer's body and stuff, and I'm very, I really hope that she can kind of become a voice that is heard a lot more, especially, like, as a commentary, so I think she has very smart things to say. Yeah, if if we still had, like, Dick Cavett-type shows, like, Diablo Cody is someone you just have on every week. week i say what if we had to cap it back like it would fix so many problems (laughs) 
it would fix everything i mean with diablo it's like obviously she was doing the powerpuff girls thing which i which just would have been so good i'm so, i'm so pissed that, that that didn't happen um she had written the madonna movie that madonna was gonna direct oh. and then that uh has been put on hold it needs to come back She's doing. She wrote a um, Frankenstein movie that Zelda Williams is directing, so that's cool. That'll be fun. I I I always get so pissed that her Powerpuff Girls thing got canceled. Wait, was she doing the CW Powerpuff Girls, or was there a movie that she was making? It was the CW Powerpuff Girls. Oh come on, that would have been so good. It would have been so good. It could have filled the Riverdale hole in our lives. Literally, like. I it, it's the if if you asked me to come up with something to follow up Riverdale, mm-hmm. I might just say that on my own, like Diablo Cody doing Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> Girls. It would be so good. Oh god, bring it back. Bring it back. Throughout 2015, Sony is just bringing on all kinds of writers to work on this Barbie script. Uh, Burt Royal, who had this Maggie's Running for Mayor pitch. Hillary Winston, who is a writer on Community. Lindsay Beer, who is also now working on the Bambi script with Sarah Polly, which was part of the conversation with Diablo Cody about people doing these these IP movies. By 2016, Amy Schumer officially enters talks to star in Barbie, also rewriting the script. The framework that Hillary Winston comes up with is a Barbie gets kicked out of Barbie land for not being perfect enough, finds fulfillment in the real world, has to come back and save Barbie land relatively close to what the movie is pretty close 2016 so, so this thing has just been kind of a beautiful perpetual stew of a movie you know <laughs> Absolutely. Like little little ingredients added in little bits yeah 2017 schumer exits barbie uh, at the time scheduling conflicts were cited uh but earlier last year she talked to hollywood reporter and she was basically like she wanted to kind of do more like subverting stereotypes and Mattel wanted to kind of play up stereotypes. Like she wanted the Barbie, the main Barbie to be like an inventor and Mattel had <laughs> this thing about her inventing like a, a, a high heel made out of jello. Uh, <laughs> the specific thing she says is just how far apart their visions of imperfection were should have been apparent when they, when, when this is from Hollywood Report actually, when she was sent a pair of Manolo Blahniks to celebrate. And she says, quote, the idea that that's just what what any woman must want right there. I should have gone. You've got the wrong gal. Oh, my God. I mean, you read the Sony emails and see a lot of that. But that right there, I think, really speaks to Mattel. (laughs) You know, the Barbie movie makes fun of Mattel pretty heavily. But like, it it seems like (laughs) their intentions throughout most of this process have been uh, pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah, Mattel, I don't think, is, like, a, a great company, and I think that they have had a lot more this movie than I think people want them to have had, mm-hmm, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Sony pushed on. They hired Olivia Milch, who wrote Ocean's 8, to take another crack at the screenplay. At this point, Anne Hathaway was in consideration to star, and Lemonade Mouth director Alethea Jones was approached to direct. That actually would have been pretty good. Could have been. Ocean's 8-style thing? I don't know. I mean, Ocean's 8 wasn't... Uh, groundbreaking but um you know it would have been it would have been serviceable yeah i think it was fun and snappy you know which is i think all this movie needed to be but in 2018 sony's option expires the rights revert back to mattel and so with that althea jones is out and hathaway is out olivia milch is out the producers are out everyone's out 
However, Warner Brothers, like, snatches it up right away. They want Margot Robbie to star and Patty Jenkins to direct. Also in 2018, Inone Kreese, Mattel's fourth CEO in four years, uh, is like, (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna do this movie thing. Rebuilds Mattel films, which, you know, ended up making, like, the Max Steel movie for, like, $5 million, and that was it. Um... He puts a new pers- a new executive in charge of Mattel Films, creating fil- movies based on Barbie and Masters of the Universe and also everything else. And he has a meeting, several meetings with Margot Robbie at the Polo Lounge. Margot Robbie wants to produce this movie and also star in it. Um, she says, quote, In that very first meeting, we impressed upon Inone that we are going to honor the legacy of your brand, but if we don't acknowledge certain things, if we don't say it, someone else is going to say it. Interesting. By July 2019, Margot is attached to Star uh, after after having all these meetings. Also in 2019, Christopher Nolan wraps production on his 12th film, Tenet. And as a parting gift, Robert Pattinson gives him a book of speeches by J. Robert Oppenheimer. Wait, so Christopher Nolan came across <laughs> Oppenheimer that late? Like 2019? He, yeah. <laughs> he, uh... Nolan generally doesn't start his next movie until he's done with the previous one. <laughs> you can tell me any one of his movies took like 15 years to like shoot mm-hmm. and edit and everything. So that that genuinely surprised me. Oppenheimer is is a figure in Nolan's life in that Nolan's brother who is mm-hmm. uh, a hitman his his codename was Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is referenced in Tenet. There's like a scene where they talk about Oppenheimer, which is why mm-hmm. Pattinson gave him the book. But yeah, Nolan was not, the thought of making an Oppenheimer movie was not on Nolan's mind at all until Tenet wrapped. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and Pattinson just seems like a, a great giver of gifts. What <laughs> 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 you say about him? He loves a gift. We often hear it said. Um, and then meanwhile, Mattel executive Richard Dixon courts Greta Gerwig to write Barbie uh, Margot Robbie had been pushing for Gerwig for over a year, um, but I, I, Richard Dixon like knows her, knows Greta somehow, so it, it, it like came together. 2020, the novel coronavirus. Everyone's favorite, the novel coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, so much better than those old coronaviruses. Yeah. Um, this sets up two things <laughs> at Warner Brothers. First of all, Nolan is fighting hard for Tenet to be released in theaters. It puts him mm-hmm. at odds with the studio who he's worked with for his entire career. The results are are very strong. Tenet makes like $400 million in 2020. Um, but it, it, things take a turn later on. But also because of COVID, Gerwig and Baumbach are writing the Barbie movie together. Zero studio intervention. Just vibes. And I feel like I watch Barbie and I think one a lot of the things that I like most about it come from how clearly it's written by like two people who were just like trapped in a room together for a year (laughs) yeah it doesn't necessarily surprise me that Bombuck and Gerwig were kind of just huffing each other's fumes writing this whole movie (laughs) love and light to them both it's just like what if they're all singing push what if one of them has like a drum kit it's just like they're building their Rips on top of each other. Yeah, Gerwig was like, I got this great Indigo Girls CD. Like, let's just put this on while we grew. Let's just put this on like five times. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, J. David Wargo is finally making progress with American Prometheus. Um, James Woods, 
the the actor james woods connects him with the producer charles rovin who who is who works with nolan a lot they, they basically james woods is like you should get christopher nolan on this and woods and rovin are both like producers on the film rovin passes a copy of american prometheus on to nolan a few months after he got this book of speeches from Pattinson. <laughs> it's like i feel like they're trying to tell me something <laughs> so nolan is writing the oppenheimer script uh and his relationship with warner brothers uh is souring uh nolan had kind of been left out of the decision to delay tenet he fiercely objected to warner brothers plan that they announced later in the year it was like end of 2020 right before wonder woman 84 is coming out or maybe the day after i don't remember and and warner is like all of our 2021 releases are straight to hbo max Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than in theaters this decision was later backtracked partially because nolan uh wrote a response in the hollywood reporter where he said quote some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed last night thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find that they were working for the worst streaming service. <laughs> Listen, I don't agree with the decision. I have feelings about the movies that came out of theaters during 2020, but also that's a raw as fuck line from him and you gotta give it to him. It feels we we see the the death spiral that Warner Brothers is in right now, and it feels like Nolan <laughs> saying that sort of just said that <laughs> to just push them down like three hundred. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would love to hear Nolan just he should just write like a bunch of speeches during this strike and just become like a beautiful union man. Absolutely, you know, just absolutely. Hating on Warner he could Brothers. also he could also get on Dick Cavett. Um, Cavett. Twenty twenty one. Barbie's still being written, Gerwig's on board to direct, Ryan Gosling cast as Ken, opposite Margot Robbie's Barbie. It feels like before this time, the idea of having Ken in the movie at all was, like, not even discussed. I I, I think the first idea that Gerwig and Bombach had was probably, let's make Ken a part of this story. (laughs) It it is interesting that Ken doesn't come up until so late, given that I think in a lot of ways it's almost more of a movie about Ken than it is a movie about Barbie. Yeah, well, we see Gerwig in a lot of recent interviews talk about how, like, the Barbie and Ken relationship is, like, an inverse of the of the Christian creation myth. She was interested in Ken as, like, this, this Waluigi figure, sort of, <laughs> like, this, you know, Ken's relationship, like, in conversation as a reflection of something else, I think, mm-hmm. seems like it really occupied Gerwig's mind as she was working yeah. on this. Gosling says he took the role after walking out into his backyard and finding a Ken doll face down in the mud next to a rotting lemon. He texted Greta mm-hmm. the picture with the added text, I shall be your Ken for this story must be told. Ryan Gosling has a beautiful mind. He's a beautiful soul. <laughs> he's so great. He's, he's 49% uh, woman. He's 49% woman. And you know what? He's serving cunt 100% of the time. I have to concur. Um, also in 2021, a bombshell report confirms that Christopher Nolan has ditched Warner Brothers and is talking mm-hmm. to multiple studios, Universal, Sony, Paramount, Apple, about his next film, Oppenheimer. Nolan quickly ruled out Paramount because their new CEO, Brian Robbins, was an advocate for streaming over theatrical. Brian Robbins also directed the film Good Burger. <laughs> Universal chair Donna Langley, meanwhile, agreed with Nolan's stance and agreed to all of Nolan's conditions for setting up Oppenheimer, including a $100 million budget, an exclusive 90 to 120 day theatrical window, three week period before and after where Universal would not release another movie. Nolan had never done a biopic before, but he wrote one 
about Howard Hughes in the early 2000s, which he shelved after The Aviator. So he says that like he learned he basically like he learned how to write a biopic from doing the Howard Hughes one. (laughs) Um, Like Oppenheimer and The Aviator, you could definitely do an interesting sort of, you know, Howard Hughes is another of those great like mid 20th century American figures with all the mm-hmm. um, pre-war and post-war kind of, kind of stuff. It, it, it's interesting. Yeah. Like Marco Robbie, Killian Murphy was involved in Oppenheimer pretty much from the get-go. He's obviously a close collaborator of Nolan's. He also resembles Oppenheimer. <laughs> so they just like, like he read the book and it was like, this guy was sort of hauntingly beautiful and had piercing <laughs> blue eyes and was very skinny. It's like, oh, we'll get Killian for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the perfect guy for that. He's haunted? Great. Yeah. We got him. Yeah, he's haunted, but he's he kind of fucks too. <laughs> yeah, haunted, but he's slinging that thing around. We we got it's the number true. one guy in Hollywood. Gerwig uh, drew a wide range of influences for Barbie. She obviously put out that on watch list. All these uh, mm-hmm. Technicolor musicals, Powell and Pressburger movies, uh, a little bit of Paradise Lost, a little bit of Planet of the Apes, Surviving Ophelia. All these different influences again. Her and Bombac just just locked in a room together all year, like like, like trying to crack this thing. <laughs> yeah, they, they were like making their way through like their joint Criterion DVD collections, and we're like, yeah, this is great, this is great. All that jazz, put that on the list. Twenty twenty two, the casts of Barbie and Oppenheimer are assembled as production begins. Some people who were not cast in Barbie include Gal Gadot, who was not available. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan, who uh, Gerwig wanted for a cameo, they were also not available. And something I found very interesting, uh, the, the list of people who were nearly cast as Kens include Dan Levy, Ben Platt, Bowen Yang, Jonathan Groff. It, it definitely seems like the, the idea of Ken having gay vibes, very present in, in, in I, the casting ideas here. I have a lot of thoughts about that, uh, you know that I will talk about later, but I do think that in their casting process and also how they marketed the supporting cast in this movie, they are really leaning into that. And I think it is striking how that actually ends up happening in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see what you're saying. I think um, it's very interesting. Matt Damon was taking a break from acting to focus on his marriage, uh, which was, mm-hmm. which was not in a good place. And he, they, they, they had this discussion where it was like, if Christopher Nolan gives me a call, I'll do it. But otherwise, I'm out. And then sure enough. <laughs> I just want to say, I love Matt Damon and Oppenheimer because he's in a different movie than every other person in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> he is very much like, a, in Blank Check, they described him as having like a superintendent Chalmers relationship to Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is very it's true. Like, but he's like, yeah. It's almost like he's in like Monuments Men too. You know, like, that was the vibe I was getting from him. Exactly. And I'm sure you saw the um, Rudy Giuliani uh, thing about Matt Damon. (laughs) I did. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Oh, Matt Damon. We love Matt. I love love Matt Damon. I love that he apologized for saying the F slur too much because his daughter yelled at him about it. His daughter who may go to Sarah Lawrence College. Classic shit. Casting announcements start to come out about Barbie and Oppenheimer, and memes start to come out about how every actor in Hollywood is either in Barbie or Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. In one such tweet, Matt Neglia coined the term Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. April 2022. Was it really that late? Like, 
That feels yeah. so crazy. It, it it's wild because um it, we'll get into but like I said before the the idea of Barbenheimer as like a thing as like a double feature was really like just the month before the movie came out. And like, like like someone asked Matt Neglia about like this Barbenheimer tweet, and he was like, "I don't remember saying that." <laughs> <laughs> like who said that? That's weird. Um, but yeah, I I remember the thing about about like Barbie and Oppenheimer, how everyone's how everyone's in yeah. them, and like it's it's a weird thing again because because the idea that these movies because these movies do share these similarities kind of thematically, mm-hmm. but the idea of that I feel like is not present until you actually see them so it's just interesting that they're talked about in conversation with each other even before we know that they're coming out on the same day yeah i am kind of curious because they do share similarities and i know we'll talk later but you know you and me are both watching riverdale season seven and we're not going to get into it but i think there's a lot of thematic stuff in that as well Mm. that's shared in both Mm -hmm. oppenheimer and barbie and i'm kind of curious if it's like just a cultural interest generally speaking in a lot of the stuff and especially like in this kind of 40s into 50s american kind of fascism and atomic like plastic era do you know what i mean yeah and i think asteroid city is really part of that conversation yeah yeah fantastic film i love asteroid city and definitely hitting on very very similar things i think yeah and i mean i mean really like those three movies are all like these sort of isolated communities and the yeah, there's, there's there's some interesting stuff going on there yeah asteroid city is almost the exact middle middle point between oppenheimer and barbie i feel like it's really true it has sort of the um from a writing perspective it, it shares a lot with barbie and then from a uh, thematic perspective it shares a lot with oppenheimer mm-hmm. uh shortly thereafter warner brothers announces that they're releasing barbie on july 21st 2023 the same day as oppenheimer it is often speculated that this was done out of spite for Christopher Nolan. Yeah, it probably yeah. was. Yeah, it probably was. 2023, promotions of both films grow, so does commentary on the fact that they're being released on the same day. Uh, it starts with memes that are just sort of like juxtaposing the two, like those two um, houses and, you know, just just anything where it's mm-hmm. like pastel colors and dark colors. Um, yeah, I, th- I think... Uh... Barbenheimer did a lot for the Ted Lasso marketing. I, you know, I think like <laughs> there were there was a lot of TV and movies that really benefited from oh black and pink on the same screen. Let's fucking get in there. Let's do it. Yeah, it, it really isn't until June that like the idea of seeing both movies as a double feature becomes part of the thing and the proper order to see them in. Mm. This, I, I, it's. You know, I think Barbenheimer did give both these movies a boost. I don't think, I think they would both have been tremendously successful regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, with Barbie, there's also at the same time this talk. I think we see it with like concert tours in the last couple years mm-hmm. with like Harry Styles and Taylor Swift, this idea of like these sort of, these sort of DIY fashion shows. Yeah. You know, the, the, these these places where everyone dresses up and they, you know, it, it, it's, it's this community sort of space. And Barbie is sort of the first time we're seeing that for a movie. Well, we also saw it for um, Rise of Gru. Remember, like, all the boys would, like, wear the suits and stuff like that. Um, That's true. We, I, I, I forgot yeah. about that. That was a very, that was a small scale thing, though. Yeah, that, that, was, that was very silly and, like, very different. Um, but it was, like, kind of this idea of, like, the movie as an event. Mm-hmm. Um which is interesting because I don't think that that's really been like a thing in either of our lifetimes. Um, and yeah, also no. wasn't really a thing for a really long time either. Like movies used to just be something that you would kind of show up to even like yeah. at their height. It's sort of reminiscent <laughs> of like 
victorian theater almost where like Mm. part of it was seeing the show and part of it was seeing the other people in the audience yeah 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 yeah. i also think like i one of my uh film professors in college was really interested in like early silent cinema and there's this whole thing where um basically from the like 20s and 30s on uh they have to train movie theater audiences because like it used to be like a really rowdy and like even when it transitioned to sound and basically this idea of like sitting quietly in the movie theater is like a very manufactured and relatively idea and coming back to like the involved audience and like the active audience in a way yeah i have heard that also um i think there there are a lot of things that are very unique about this i mean again as we were saying the very idea of the double feature has in the in the 21st century the only examples of that are like new movie and a franchise is coming out let's show the previous movies on uh, as like one big viewing day like you don't really see and of course it's the traditional double feature would be like two cheap movies shown for the price of one this is not really Mm -hmm. that but like it's 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 an unprecedented thing yeah it's really really striking and i i I personally love a double feature like i grew up uh there was this place in chicago that would do like monster movies from like the 30s and 40s like every month you know and i love that kind of experience where you're watching like two things back to back uh i'm very curious if that's something that like studios are going to lean into or if they're just going to kind of because we've already seen you know there was like something where like oh paw patrol is coming out the same day as saw and it's like well that's two different audiences yeah very very different you know yeah i think that is like the you know with any of these things in film it takes a couple years to actually see the impact and i think that's especially true because of the strikes but um saw patrol i think is definitely (laughs) that early like studios being like is this something we should be (laughs) with anything (laughs) what do you think of this i think um yeah, the thing with Saw Patrol is that no one who wants to see one wants to see the other, and not that many people want to see either of them anyway. Um, <laughs> like, like, like I was saying, people wanted to see Barbie and Oppenheimer. Like, they're they were both going to be hit movies either way. Oh yeah, they're also. I think they have very similar audiences, like from the start. And I think, like, I really don't feel like Barbie was aimed at kids at all. And I think, like, especially like having it be all these things. Like, I think it actually has a similar target audience to Oppenheimer from the get-go. Yeah, I have heard rumors that they test-screened a few different versions of Barbie, Mm. and it's possible that the reason they went with this one is because it was starting to blow up online. But I mean, I mean, I saw kids at, at, at my Barbie screening. I mean, people are, are taking their kids to see it. And I think these were both like big summer tentpole releases, even though they're not what what we see in the last couple years with mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the big mega franchises. I think that is sort of the, um, the most encouraging thing about these is that even though they are movies that would have been hits, in a year where the franchise thing is kind of not working anymore, the success of these two movies points to less of the franchise stuff and more of like making different kinds of movies, doing counter-programming, trusting creatives to, you know, I think IP is still going to be a thing. I mean, it's Barbie, mm-hmm. right? But um, I think what we're going to see more of is like taking an IP that hasn't, been like a narrative or movie thing before and just letting these these filmmakers play around with them a bit more mm-hmm. um you know there's the article that came out about how mattel wants to do like what wants oh to turn God, everything yeah. they've got into a movie 
um they're, they're doing the uh a surreal barney comedy with daniel kaluuya they're trying to crack the uno movie but the thing is like i look at you know the snow white remake that's coming out next year yeah. and greta gerwig also helped write that but it's like if i hear that the snow white movie is good i probably still won't see it but if i hear that the uno movie is good i'm gonna see that shit <laughs> Uh, I, I'm like very, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, thinking about, because I was thinking about the Mattel thing and like, there's like the gut reaction of like, that's so weird. It's like, there's, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is based on a a ride, you know, Mm -hmm. and even like, it was such a thing in the early 2000s, very manufactured and you had like the Cheetah Girls and like that and it feels like a, maybe, maybe we'll see like third party branded video games. Yeah, I think, um... Lego Movie definitely did open the floodgates, but I think I would rather have more Lego movies than more like remakes and and legacy sequels of like uh, of like you know schlock. <laughs> like if it's gonna be schlock, mm-hmm. it should be like it should lean into the schlock more, like I think Barbie does. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. And Oppenheimer, I mean, look, Oppenheimer, it could be because of Barbenheimer, but Oppenheimer has already made more money than Batman Begins. Like, like, it's a real serious fucking bet idiot. Oh, yeah. Which is crazy. Like, I personally, I have seen, you know, I, I'm a big courtroom history drama movie fan. I've seen Spotlight 27 times. I would have given Oppenheimer so much money, but not that many people would have. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we'll see. But I think that is uh, is an exciting thing for the future. I mean, we can start to talk about the movies, but also yeah. like I think there are, there's a lot to be said about like what people are going to learn from from this. Again, it'll be a few years before we see, but uh, I, I think it's an encouraging sign. It's an encouraging sign for Hollywood. I think. Yeah, agreed. Um, before we start talking about the movies, I actually have a question, which is, what order did you see them in, and did did you do it as a double feature <laughs> on the same day, or did you? Do two separate. I I was never gonna do it as a double feature on the same day. I I <laughs> that was never gonna be my thing. I think for people who never go to the movie, does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. I I know my tolerance. I saw Oppenheimer first on on a Friday, and then I was going to see Barbie the next day, but I accidentally got a ticket for the wrong day, so I ended up seeing <laughs> it the following day. Um, but me and my friends who were going to see it, we got our pictures taken for the Washington Post, and then I had a oh. nice steak dinner. So it was still a good day. Sounds beautiful. Yeah, it was great. Um, but yeah, Oppenheimer, attempt to see Barbie, actually see Barbie. That was my three-day mm-hmm. weekend. Nice. How about you? I, I did the double feature, which, uh, you know, I also see movies a lot, but I kind of have a relatively high tolerance for watching a fair amount of them at once. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it with a large group of friends. I think there's like eight of us max, but there's a couple people who only saw Barbie and didn't see Oppenheimer. It was, uh, we did Oppenheimer first. We saw that at 1.30. And mm-hmm. then we got out of that movie around 4.30 and we went back to Barbie at 6.30. Um, it was kind of a perfect day. We had, you know, we got lunch and coffee. Before. We got dinner between the two movies, got a little bit high. Which I think was the perfect way to go into Barbie. Um, mm-hmm. We're out of there by like eight thirty or whatever. Um, That's so gorgeous. It was it was truly beautiful. I did not dress up because I realized I didn't own a single thing that was pink aside from like one pair of socks. So I was just wearing like a black shirt and black pants, which is what I wear basically every day. I also will say 
I actually didn't see a single kid in the theater while we were there. Mm. Um, we It was like a Saturday. So, you know, kind of prime time movie watching time. Um, we saw it in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, which is definitely like a family neighborhood in certain parts of it, but it's also like the theater was almost entirely like 30 year old white millennial women. Um, we were actually I like think- some of the very few visibly queer people, especially at our screening of Barbie, which was interesting. That is interesting. I think the... It could be a thing where, like, you know, young adults are more likely to sort of buy their tickets in advance and then book up the whole theater. I mean, definitely the people I saw lining up and dressed out, up, dressed up outside of any Barbie screenings were always, always young adults. Mm, that would, I think, make sense a lot. I one one thing, one observation about people who did the double feature or saw both in the same weekend or what have you is like, I think you have. And I, I said I said as much at the time. I think you have not gone, you have not fulfilled the assignment if you didn't also have an Oppenheimer outfit picked out. Mm-hmm. I I was really surprised by that because like it was, it was everyone dressed up for Barbie and not Oppenheimer. And I I kind of like purpose I you know said I was just wearing my everyday outfit, but it was like okay, this is my slightly more elevated, so I can dress up in some manner. But no, like. Our Oppenheimer screening was totally pink. Like everyone was dressed in their pink outfits already. Yeah, I get it, and I know that doing a wardrobe change uh, in a double feature is a tall order. But I just think you you haven't committed if you haven't done that. Yeah, commit to the fucking bit. Don't be a pussy. Exactly. So Barbie and Oppenheimer. We can. Mm-hmm. I, I'll start by talking about sort of the 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 main thing I'm thinking of when I say these movies are similar. Is that, and I said this, I, I said as much at the time, I think that Nolan sees Oppenheimer as like a very influential and interesting figure, but also condemns him in the sense that he blames him for the destruction of the world. And I think mm-hmm. Gerwig seems to have a similar attitude about Barbie. Yeah, I think Gerwig sees a possibility for redemption in Barbie that I don't necessarily mm. think that Nolan sees for Oppenheimer. If that makes sense. I, I could see that. I feel like, I, I, I think, you know, hearing a lot of, I, I mean, there, there's much to complain about with Barbie. I, I agree with you there. But I think I do, the reason I forgive a lot of it is because I do feel like my main takeaway from the movie was like, Barbie is the problem and can't be the solution. Here, here's here's the thing that I would say against that. Um, and this, I'll, I'll bring this line up later uh, for some other stuff because it, it was, like this one line was very frustrating to me, but it's um, they focus very heavily on Barbie's creator, Ruth Handler. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for those who don't know, like the story of Ruth Handler is something that like gets packaged uh, pretty consistently in the entire history of Barbie is like, oh, she made this because she didn't want like she wanted an option that wasn't baby dolls. And like this narrative comes in you mentioned Lisa Simpson versus Malibu Stacy. Like that is in that episode. It's in basically every history of Barbie, every corporate history. And they have this moment where she's meeting Barbie and she's like, you know, Barbie's like, I don't know what to do. And she says to her, it's like mothers stand still so that their daughters can look back and see how far they've come. Mm. And in this missioning, Barbie is explicitly supposed to be like the daughter and, you know, Ruth is supposed to be the mother. And I think like that kind of sends Barbie off where like she is the one who is going to go forward and pave the way. You know, Ruth got it started, but Barbie is the one who's going to continue it. And I think that, like, like I think Berwick really does see a future there. And, you know, I don't know how much is, like, studio intervention, but that, that line really has a kind of a Gerwig flavor to it. Uh, 
That's and true. you know Oppenheimer the whole movie is like I need to kill myself I need to kill myself what have I done <laughs> um it's true uh, in a very different way I think and I think like I you know I think even a lot of the self-criticism in Barbie is kind of like you know there's the line where the daughter whose name I don't even remember calls Barbie a fascist and it's like mm-hmm. it, it feels preemptively critical so that Barbie can kind of be the good one who actually overcomes that if that makes sense i don't know if you read it that way i i didn't necessarily because i think i think the daughter turns out to be right um but i i i I think there's a level at which you know it's a mattel movie (laughs) there there are things that they couldn't get away with if they wanted to yeah but it's interesting what you're pointing out because you're pointing out how they fed into a certain uh, a, a mattel narrative about barbie's history and mm-hmm. i think it's an interesting contrast to i think one of the bolder statements that the movie makes early on which is that in barbie land all the barbies think that they've solved feminism and that in the real mm-hmm. world ev- everything's fixed because of barbie and then barbie comes to the real world and finds out that's not true at all and that she's actually the problem part of the problem i should say and and so i think there's an interesting contrast there and i think that probably speaks to the movie as a whole where for for everything where you could say they they you know kind of did this unexpectedly bold thing there's another thing where they sort of do the opposite yeah i think you kind of hit exactly on like what really rubbed me the wrong way was that it like on the one hand it really wants to pat itself on the back for how ridiculous it is that barbie would be a feminist icon but at the end like they do have to resolve it with barbie like like the the movie is marketed as feminist Barbie, you know, like from the start, and like it's very, it's it's very strange, and it's it's a very uncanny movie, I think, because of these back and forths. But it doesn't necessarily have the, <sighs> like it maybe it's because I'm Riverdale pilled, but it's like uh, I've seen a genuinely subversion of corporate material and corporate IP, and this was not that. Yeah, it, there's an interesting thing. Another interesting thing from my research was like a Mattel executive being like this is not a feminist movie and then they ask margot robbie about it and she sighs and was like who said that (laughs) yeah yeah it's like it's like there's like one rogue mattel executive i yeah i think um what i there are a lot of things i really like about barbie the production Mm -hmm. design is some of the best we've seen since like early to mid 90s like early tim burton um Margot and Ryan are both incredible. Mm-hmm. I there's a lot of great bits in it. <laughs> I like a lot of the gags. There, there's really good bits. Like <laughs> I don't I don't want to like say that I didn't have a good time because like genuinely I was really laughing in the theater and like oh my Ryan Gosling delivers truly some of the best lines in the movie. Like just the mm-hmm. one line of like sublime, you know, <laughs> is so good and even like when will ferrell is like call me mother like there's there's really good material there it's gorgeous beautiful did you see that tweet where where someone was like was like they they clearly wanted um matthew mcfadden for for that role and then someone else was like Uh yeah i'm sure they wanted matthew mcfadden and they had to settle for will ferrell (laughs) (laughs) please Put some respect on Will. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, not my that man it, like... is working. <laughs> Matthew McFadden would deliver that line so crazy that <laughs> we'd all love to see him. But like, come on, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's Will it's... Ferrell. 
it's fun to be delusional online. It's so fun to be delusional online. I love when people straight up lie. The, as I said up top, I think that both Barbie and Oppenheimer have this kind of, again, this necessary fraying because of the perspective and the subject matter that they're working with. I think Nolan mostly threads the needle pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I'm of two minds about a lot of the criticism about like mm-hmm. whether explicitly showing things is better or whether it's actually worse. Um, but I do ultimately think that this is a what have I done movie and it could have yeah. been more effective if we if it was a little more explicit about what he did. I think my feeling of Oppenheimer, um, you know, and for people who might not have seen the discourse and the conversations, it was basically like. The debate over how much should be shown about, like, the Japanese response to the atomic bomb and, like, the the genuine, like, the kind of undescribable level of horror, like, that was done and, you know, the conversation around, um, like, the Native communities in New Mexico that kind of get left out a lot of a lot of these conversations. Um, and I think those are incredibly fair and, like, valid things to bring up. But I also think that this movie is just kind of not that um, mm. in a lot of ways. Like I think Oppenheimer is, I've been describing it as kind of like an experiment in subjectivity, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, it's, you have Oppenheimer's perspective and you have Strauss's perspective and it's like Strauss is right. in black and white and Oppenheimer's in color. And it's very, what I find so compelling about this movie is that it basically takes, uh, it takes history as completely subjective and you see a lot of the same moments over and over and over again throughout the movie in like very slightly different ways and it's very concerned with like the visual image and how it conveys these differences um mm-hmm. and i think that um oh, sorry, my cat is pulling my microphone into his mouth uh, um i think that it does a lot at kind of pointing at the horror without actually having to show it um mm-hmm. you know and I, I don't want to say that, like, this is not something that you should so, show on screen, because I don't think that's true. But I also think that this movie is concerned with something slightly different than, like, the history of the bomb. Like, it really is, like, the history of Oppenheimer and the history of, like, his relationship to the American government. True. More so than, like, here's how the bomb got made. Which is not to say that that's not part of the movie, but that's kind of how I came out of it. Uh, and, Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Nolan is very much thinking about Oppenheimer's point of view and has kind of talked about how Oppenheimer never actually like expressed, you know, mm-hmm. remorse for the lives lost and and probably, yeah. you know, never really thought about it. Um even even though he you know thought about the 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 horror of his invention. I Nolan is thinking about subjectivity. He wrote the script in the first person. He mm-hmm. but I, I think he is also having that thought, and I think people online who are having this debate are sometimes having a thought a few steps before it. People yeah. online are talking about, like, what's the right way to show it? And I think Nolan is thinking about, is it okay to show yeah. it? I, I think, yeah, I think you're 100% right on that. And I think that that is something that, like, you know, like I said, I'm not usually a huge Nolan person, but I think he really, this seems very base level, but I think he understands images work in a sequence. Mm-hmm. And how images work compared to words in a way that, like, there's this moment about halfway where Oppenheimer has to, like, give this speech to the, uh, oh my god, I don't remember the name of the testing site. Uh, Los Alamos. Los Alamos. 
um he has to give a speech to like basically them and like it's like this patriotic speech and while he's giving it he's having these like visions of like everyone there being ripped to shreds by like atomic waste and i think that like that does so much without having to kind of like exploit the image of japan uh which is like you know those photos are awful um yeah and there are a couple of, of of extra things of note about that scene one of them is that there this rumbling that we hear throughout the movie up to mm-hmm. that point yeah. that we think is the bomb turns out to be that crowd like stomping their feet yeah. and also yeah. the woman who he sees with with like her face being kind, mm-hmm. kind of melted off is Nolan's daughter really yeah that's fantastic not fantastic but like that's genius um, yeah i mean like that like th- that that's what i'm saying like he's thinking about like what like like how can you portray this in a way that isn't mm-hmm. th- that isn't like exploiting it and is actually like 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 you know treating it like real people died and yeah. <laughs> it's it, it, it a lot of thought goes into it even even if you think yeah. and i i'm again not opposed to this idea that like there's a more direct way that would have made it more effective but like yeah I, I mean, I mean, come on! <laughs> like he's clearly thinking about this, he's and I sort of about it. as the discourse was going on, I sort of pictured like the Adam McKay version where someone like talks yeah. to camera about like oh <laughs> about like everything that happened to the fallout of the bomb, oh my and it's God. like you you know people wouldn't have been complaining about that. <laughs> no, and like you know the Adam McKay thing can. You know, because you're you're referencing like Big Short, and that movie is a movie that like I left that theater and I felt nauseous. Mm. Um, like there is still a way to kind of convey the scale of these things using that method, but it's a very different mode, and it's like kind of overwhelming in a different way. Whereas this was like affectively overwhelming with an A. Um, one other thing I want to say about this kind of conversation is one, you know, I saw a lot of people saying like, "Well, would you really want like a white man making that kind of?" You know, even on the kind of Christopher Nolan defending side, um, which like I think I am kind of in the camp of I think he did something very smart there. I think he was very thoughtful. I think that this does it is like a kind of blistering critique of America. Like that scene really is like the roaring throngs of fascism in America. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that there was a conversation that was had. That Do we want to invite these people only to be victims of intense suffering? Mm. And I think that he manages to talk about a lot of these things while not necessarily having that be the case. Yeah, absolutely. Does that kind of make sense? And like, yeah, why yeah, yeah. why do we need to see this? It's a movie that sparks these conversations, and it's a movie that mm-hmm. um, you know when someone's when when someone is not on screen in the film, it doesn't mean the filmmaker didn't think about it. It means they're saying something by. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I, I think the, the the conversation between Oppenheimer and the audience is like this was Oppenheimer's perspective, mm-hmm. and you know, like 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 not everything needs to be portrayed. No, and I think sometimes a structuring absence is incredibly effective. Um, I mean, you know, this whole idea of like what is not shown on screen is kind of like the basis of, like American film studies um, generally, and I think also. <sighs> I don't, I don't know if you feel this way, but I think in American history, like how it is taught to our um, popular understanding of it, there tends to be a silence around a lot of domestic uh, 
stuff in World War II. Um, like, I, I have very specific memories, of, like, you know, in my AP US history class, like, got to the World War II chapter, and it was like, okay, Rosie the Riveter, um, you know, kind of like the at-home, uh, like, white versus black, like, relation, uh, racial tension, and then all of a sudden we were just, like, in France and Germany for, like, a chapter. Right. And I think that he's very aware of this, like, historical silence, and so much of this kind of about playing with that and playing with why that silence is there and like I, I think he's very smart about what he does show on screen like what gets said what doesn't get said what gets seen what doesn't get seen and I think I, I think it's very striking that even though Oppenheimer is so you can kind of like there is a time before atomic energy and there's a time after like mm-hmm. just across the board and I think even though this is something people know about I think it's not something that like really gets shown that much and i think like keeping a tight focus really really effective here yeah yeah i mean there's a thousand more things you could get into with like um the how short the time is between the test and when the bombs drop and how like mm-hmm. he only hears about it over the radio which is which is true to mm-hmm. how how it would have been and you know he ne- he never would have seen the bomb mm-hmm. drop i think that that's a very deliberate thing um mm-hmm. One thing I really love about this movie, Nolan is generally not the kind of guy who, like, steps out of the narrative form. And there's a lot of cool stuff with, like, with the subjectivity in this movie. It, it, it It's sort of a bold step forward with, like, not only the mm-hmm. sort of, like, firing, you know, atoms and things at the beginning, but, like, the yeah. scene where he's being interrogated and suddenly Florence Pugh is there and they're fucking. Yeah. Or the... The, the near the end he's he's thinking about um gene dying and there's the shot of like the gloved hands oh i think that that is maybe one of the most like subtle and impactful things i've seen on screen in ages yeah like truly i gasped when that happened that is so effective and so smart and just oh i think he understands so well that history is not actually there's no metaphysical truth to how history is written Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like there and like especially with things like this where like you know one person was there and that person dead like we're never what actually happened most likely um yeah. and he does such a good job of showing that yeah i'm just my i'm just firing off different things to talk about where it's like we haven't even really talked about straws yet or like oh. <laughs> it's so great rami malik <laughs> rami malik dude Rami Malek showed up, my theater cheered, and then he did talk for the next hour and a half of the movie. And then he says, like, two lines towards... It's, like, the last 30 minutes when he talks. So genius. It's so, like... Like, he shows up and he's completely silent, and, and there's a rumbling in the theater. And then he shows up again and he's completely silent. And then when he <laughs> when he comes out at the at the Senate hearing and just fucking destroys drugs, mm-hmm. it's like... There he fucking is. Underrated moment is when his clipboard gets smacked out of his hand and he scurries <laughs> after it. He's so... He's uh, <laughs> so funny. And it's, like, not meant to be funny. Uh, there's so many good... Like, it is just, like, the greatest, you know, actors in Hollywood doing, like, the funniest shit in the world for two minutes and then delivering, like, a line that floors you so bad you can't stand up. It's crazy when, like... 
<laughs> when Casey Affleck shows up like fucking Frankenstein. Oh. <laughs> In contrast to the Robbie Malik moment, my theater, there was multiple shows when Casey Affleck came yeah. on screen. Yeah, yeah. The I it I I love that like one of the two or three parts of this movie is mostly just Robert Downey Jr. and Alden Ehrenreich like talking in an office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So great. Um, Alden Girlies, we won. We won. Kelsey's so our hard. greatest movie of all time. <laughs> we need to be talking about Hobie Doyle more. I'm always talking about Hobie Doyle. Everyone should go watch. Uh, I just said the name of the movie. Kelsey's yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Hail Caesar. Everyone should go watch Hail Caesar. Yeah, and with 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 Alden and and Downey, it's like two two mm-hmm. guys from the from the Disney machine who are finally getting to fucking let loose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just killing it. I love how like yeah. with the with the straws perspective, like we sort of think it's like Memento, and this is the objective perspective. And then there's mm-hmm. that great scene where Straws starts to go kind of nuts, and we're like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. And Alden plays it so well. <laughs> it is like, genuinely, like the mounting tension towards the back of the movie where the Straws perspective kind of starts to unravel, it feels operatic. Because, like, uh, Downey's performance is like relatively retained for most of the movie, and then you just watch him cook for the last yeah. hour. <laughs> I. I've I've missed I've missed a good Downey performance. We so love to see it. Um, Josh Hartnett used so well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, uh, Dane DeHaan. <laughs> oh, great Dane DeHaan. Great to well, see. I've him. missed him. He's back I've on the menu. Him. Uh, Josh Safdie always love when a surprise Safdie moment. There. Benny, yeah, he um, he's like. He's like the villain of the movie, kind of. Like, I was a little... Like, when I first saw him, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's nice. And then he, like, kept coming back and just being a fucking freak. And I'm like, <laughs> there we go. I need... I, I do need a sequel about him, because I was on his Wikipedia page, and boy, if that man lived a crazy life and pissed off a lot of people. Yeah. I'd say Nolan is still not necessarily beating the can't-write-women allegations. No, but... I, 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 I like a lot of what Emily Blunt's doing in this movie. I will say, like, I have criticism for him, and this he loves a boy, you know, like, just mm-hmm. at his heart. But he does, I think there's, like, kind of an interesting thing going on with uh, Kitty, Emily mm-hmm. Blunt's character, and especially, like, when she really gets to, like, work in the interrogation scene, like, that's very compelling to me. Um, yeah. Her and Pooh, Pooh I, don't, I still don't know how to pronounce uh, Florence Pugh's last name, so sorry to her. They're both, I think, giving very interesting performances, and I was like, I was, I was very invested every time they screen, even though they didn't have like a crazy amount to work with. Yeah, they're kind of both doing different types of like old Hollywood performances. Oh my god, yeah, Emily Blunt should like legally only be allowed to do a transatlantic accent. <laughs> yeah, play characters named Kitty. Kitty. <laughs> uh, we don't we don't name people Kitty the way we used to. We got. We used to be back. a country. We used to be a real country. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of uh, shuffling through shuffling through Barbie right now, seeing what else there is to say. Mm-hmm. America Ferrera, pretty good. I haven't seen her in a while. I know she's been around, but I personally haven't seen her in a while. Yeah, I I fell off of Superstore, but she she was very good against that. Her and Ben Feldman were a great comedic team. Mm-hmm. Um, the the musical numbers I think are very good. I wish there was more musical numbers. Actually, like I kind of maybe this is I I took like a 
huge class on the history of the movie musical uh mm-hmm. my last year in college and maybe that's just this but i kind of think that barbie would have actually worked a lot better as a musical there's i'm trying to remember the name of the guy who wrote it but there's this really famous um backbone analytic text for how we understand like the movie musical that reads every musical is kind of a utopia barbie is that you know like dual focus between um barbie and ken you can also see it as a dual focus barbie and america Ferrera's character whose name i couldn't tell you uh mm-hmm. and you know they kind of form this society at the end and i think maybe the movie wouldn't have had to rely so much on telling and not showing if they could sing it in order to tell it yeah i i see where you're coming from and i i agree in many ways um i think hollywood has a weird relationship to musicals right now um Mm -hmm. partially because of like in the heights and west side story in 2021 um Mm -hmm. but it's an interesting thing i look at some of the stuff that's coming out where it's like they they just put out the trailer for Dicks, the the Larry Charles musical with Megan Thee Stallion and Bone Yang that um you yeah. know is it's it's like it looks good a twenty four thing you know it's a different sort of thing but then when you look at the big studio stuff it's like the Color Purple trailer doesn't really have any music in it the Wonka trailer doesn't have any music in it and it's like yeah. they they're worried about like they're embarrassed to reveal that they're musicals but I think the Wonka movie doesn't make sense until you hear that it's a musical, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, this is why you're actually doing this. Um, no, I, I, you know, I've kind of always been a movie musical person. Like, my mom is a film professor and teaches a lot about them, but also, like, I grew up watching, like, The Music Man and all these old Hollywood ones. Um, and so I think it's an easier, it's an easier jump, I think, for me than a lot of other people. But mm-hmm. it especially with the kind of like you know they're doing matte backgrounds like real sets which is great and like i love the fact that like all of barbie land is physical mm-hmm. um but it, it feels like it feels like the trappings of a genre um that doesn't fully get there and i'd be very curious how uh how the musical version of barbie would look um it's especially yeah. weird because it, you know, they released the entirety of the Ken number like two weeks before the movie came out. Uh, that was not a which great is idea. Crazy to me. No, and I don't know if they were like priming people for, you know, because of the kind of embarrassment around the musical, mm-hmm. um, kind of a general embarrassment around genre generally. I think that Hollywood has right now. Yeah, um, it's weird because like or... if, if Barbie had been a musical, people would be talking about how it's a love letter to musicals. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which it like in a lot of ways is. I mean, like if it's, like she has like every Jacques Demy film and like mm-hmm. Singing in the Rain is on there. Um, I think like The King and I might have been, like there was like, a crazy weird mix of musicals on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I should pull up that list actually. Probably. But it has those things. It has the the like very practical and stylized stuff. It has the Grease reference in the in the I'm Just Head number. But really, it's just that and and the, the, the like song and dance sequences are like that, the Dua Lipa song and pushed by Matchbox 20, which, which I love. But like, mm-hmm. that was great. That was really good. <laughs> that was my favorite bit in the movie. <laughs> I thought that was so good. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think like there's a, a much uh, there is a, a musical version of this that like is a lot more cohesive. Yeah, I'm curious. 
she also, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the Barbie inspiration list right now, and she, she included uh, Gold Diggers of 1930. There, there seems to be some uh, confusion over whether it's Gold Diggers of 1933 or 1935, uh, which are, it's a series of backstage musicals from the 1930s about showgirls, mm-hmm. um, which is, I, I just want to bring that up here because, you know, the musical conversation, but also gold, the Gold Digger series is, uh, I would describe it as a Marxist feminist film series. Very, mm-hmm. like, I think you can read it very seriously. It's about showgirls in the Depression who are underpaid. Um, and this was a time when showgirls were actually striking for their wages. And it's very concerned about feminized labor and underpaid feminized labor. There's a lot of stuff about feminized labor kind of on the films that she's pulling from. But that one kind of jumped out at me, given that this is a movie that is kind of a capitalist product that is not necessarily interested in material realities of feminism. Yeah, it's like um, I, I what what I've said about Barbie is that it's like Ken Ken comes to our world, finds out about patriarchy, brings it back to the Kens, and it feels like there's it's like taking ideas about patriarchy and putting them onto like a truly binary society. And sort of like yes. playing with playing with the absurdity of that, um, but when it comes to like the real world conditions of you know America Ferreira's character, she she's mm-hmm. she's depressed and she doesn't like her job, I guess, and she has a strained relationship with her daughter. But like everything feels very underdeveloped when it comes to like applying that idea to the real world, and I think that um, is where is where the movie has trouble. Maybe that's not what they're trying to yeah. do, but like. It, it, it feels like it's missing that. Yeah, I think this, this is probably a good segue into kind of talking about the politics of Barbie. Um, and I think America Ferrer's character is really interesting because she's very stagnant in the movie. Um, you know, like she ultimately doesn't really learn a lot from Barbie aside from like how to rock a jumpsuit. Uh, True. She does. Um, you know, because I think I was really expecting her to take over as like CEO, but yeah, she she doesn't right. Like she stays an assistant the entire time. Um, yeah, no, her her job never really comes up <laughs> for the rest of the movie. No, her job never really comes up, and like there isn't really a lot of like discussion around like what does it mean to have like a Latina woman who is working as the assistant while like the entirely mostly white, uh, maybe not entirely white, uh, yeah. male board of Mattel. But it's it's kind of a... She's the voice of a lot of the politics in the film. You know, she delivers monologue that I assume we're going to talk about. Uh, but doesn't necessarily get to reap words uh, mm. in, in ways that are interesting. Yeah, I think most of my problems with Barbie are in the last, like, five to ten minutes. <laughs> if they if, yeah if, if they had if they had fixed the ending they'd have fixed them <laughs> and here's the thing i think about again that that basic premise of like barbie thinks she's solved feminism and comes to our world and realizes that she's part of the problem how do you end that story i i think barbie renouncing barbiehood and becoming a real woman is the way to do that but it's mm-hmm. it's it it doesn't feel like it's her choice and it doesn't feel like anything else really gets resolved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I also I, I I think I have problems with uh, I have problems with it before the ending um, that we can get into. But I think you know Barbie makes this shift or transition 
to being a real woman. And the gag of the movie is the very final scene is her going to the gynecologist. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen some people read that as like a trans narrative um, because, you know, there's like a line where Barbie doesn't have a vagina earlier. In the, but it reads to me as like, in order to become a real woman, she has to go to the gynecologist. Like she has to have a vagina first. Like that is the marker of womanhood. And I think that that's very tied to the motherhood stuff throughout the film. Um, But second, the gynecologist is played as a joke because it's like, you're supposed to think like, oh, Barbie's got, her life is so much better now, but actually it sucks uh, because she has to go to the gynecologist. And it feels like there is kind of a, there's a there's a bothersome aspect of that, I think, at a mm-hmm. base level, which is like, oh, isn't that funny? Like, actually, this, you know, whoops, haha, now she has to do this. But it, it there's like a lot of implications there that I don't know that the movie is necessarily considering, or if they are considering, it, it's kind of very frustrating on top of that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, what your thoughts were on that final scene, because that kind of was like, I already had growing frustrations with the movie and then that like really soured me on it. Yeah, I I think I tend to think of it more as the latter, as something that they didn't really think about. I think um, the again, I, I, I sort of think that like w- what I'm picturing is sort of what the wavelength that they were on where they were like, Barbie land is always going to be fucked up and Barbie needs to renounce that to to conclude her narrative and to grow. And then they were like, she's a real woman, let's let's end the movie on kind of a, a little gag, and they didn't really think about it beyond that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it can be read in a lot of ways, um, and I think they... It's hard, it, I don't know, it's kind of hard to imagine that Bombeck and Gerwig, like, they, you, the way we've been talking about them this whole time, like, they're the kind of people mm-hmm. who would, like, write this joke and then start thinking about the implications of it um but yeah I, I it sort of seems like they didn't i don't know <laughs> i think there's a lot of hand wringing in barbie like over barbie generally you know and we talked about that where like there's so much anxiety of like can barbie be this thing mm-hmm. but it's I, me- I mentioned earlier that i i was kind of noticing how much queerness was actually being leveraged in the marketing around the casting of this movie um, talked about how most of the Kens are like famous for either being gay or being associated with gayness. Um, you know, you have a, like a third of the cast of sex education is in this movie. You also very notably have Harry, Harry Neff. I, I don't think like she needed to be like, I'm trans Barbie, but it was, it was very striking how little discussion, like there's kind of no discussion of gender sexuality at all uh, in the movie. And then to kind of end on that, uh, with Barbie at the gynecologist, it was just it was very it was a very weird combination to me. And I think at this point in 2023, I think that like that joke, it's it's meant to be a kind of like shock you into laughter, but it also like has it has a lot of like conversations tied to it uh, mm-hmm. inherently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if anything, the sort of idea behind it is like the you know they they imagine someone sort of clutching their pearls at it mm-hmm. yeah we, 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 which is interesting and there's a lot to be said about it um mm, i i feel like gender and sexuality is is fundamental in in many ways here in that like i i don't know i just i again we're talking about this like 
fantasy binary society and i feel like there are a lot of um you know it, it it's like it's it, it's sort of reinventing gender uh <laughs> like, like 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 reinventing the gender binary in this barbie society which has its own sort of quirks but um i i'm hesitant to say that it's not there at all because i think yeah it, it's 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 there on a fundamental level that I think um, if if it had been more of an explicit thing, you know, would that have necessarily... I, 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 I'm a supporter of sort of allegorical narratives about, about gender and sexuality, and I think there's a lot yeah. of that here with uh, the Michael Sarah character and a lot yeah. of the, the sort of quirks of this world. I, I, yeah, I think it was a mistake to say it's not there at all. I Because, I, uh, you know, halfway through the movie, Hands by patriarchy and the Barbies are brainwashed into submission and there's this safe house that's uh weird Barbie and weird Barbie is Kate McKinnon who mm-hmm. is like you know now that we hate Ellen she's the comfortable lesbian true um Alan has not been brainwashed and the only Kens that have not been who are like you know Kens that were removed from the market because they made Ken too much of a uh a fairy mm-hmm. uh even though that's kind of always been the thing is that like Ken is gay uh but they seemingly are like immune from patriarchy, but also like the gay men who are playing the regular Kens are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's very it's like they've set up this equation and realized that it work, uh, but they've committed to it already. Um, I don't know. It, it's like very it's very interesting to have like this kind of queerness be like an ability to escape from it. But also at the same time, like the actual master plan to restore Barbie land is very reliant on heterosexuality. You know, like mm-hmm. it requires the Barbies to kind of trick the Kens by like being like, you're so strong. You're so big. Oh, my God. And it's it's I don't know. It's like a very it's a very confused movie. I've been thinking about it a lot. Like, I feel like every time I scratch at it more, there's like kind of different contradictions. And I'm not um, like, I I think you make a really good point there. And I think that, you know, some of this is just them not thinking about it, but it is also like, there's a lot happening there when you actually do think about it, uh, you know, and when you kind of scratch a layer of paint off. Yeah. And, and I, I'm again, I, I think that is the sort of, that is the kind of stuff where like my broader interpretation of the movie and how it's like, I, I think the Ken patriarchy stuff is sort of like this is how this is how Barbie is about women, you know, <laughs> like like yeah. like like it's presenting these um the, the these unflattering caricatures who have all this power but are still ultimately like 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 caricatures of like manhood, and so I mm-hmm. I, I I tend to give this movie. I think more credit for for thinking about these things and not trying to just present Barbie Land as like a parody of our world. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it is a, a thorny movie. I like thorny movies, but um, there there are things where I think it drops the ball as well. Again, I think in the last like in the ending, especially there's the gag in the ending yeah. where where Will Ferrell like unexpectedly. there's the gag where he's like i became a c you know i became a ceo of mattel it's to it wasn't to make money it was for you know to make his dreams come true and it's a very funny line and i think it's a gag but like 
it, it, it it's thorny also it's like it's like the final yeah. act of the movie is the mattel ceo sort of doing this benevolent deed well it's like it's a it's a benevolent deed and it is again like it is an inherently capitalist product mm-hmm. um and there's kind of no way around that. and i'm not i'm not asking a barbie movie to be, uh, you know anti-capitalist but it is also like josie and the pussycats did it uh you know yeah. there's a bit i find interesting when like uh barbie and sasha and america ferrera are, are like in the barbie world for the first time and barbie is like there's so many empower- empowering things you can do you can buy things here you can buy things here like they do one like mm-hmm. kind of incisive yeah. gag about barbie's version of empowerment yeah they do they do like they do poke at that are you know it's played as a joke that like he just was excited about horses like he was excited about horses but there's this kind of great line where he's like met horses are extensions of men which kind of yeah you you can read that as like genuinely like pointing towards you know 300 history 300 years of like american history and like american expansion and the west mm-hmm. and like all these things and like i, I don't want to say that like they haven't thought about stuff um and that yeah. uh you know there's not interesting stuff in there it's just that i think i think the conclusions they come to are very frustrating to me and i think i i was very ready to actually give this movie the benefit of the doubt um like i i like bright colors and i like music like funny stuff i don't know i i I like a lot of bad movies uh the mangler Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite movies Mm -hmm. but i think this movie wants you to take it very seriously you know like i think that i think it does genuinely want you to get something out of it and i want to meet it where it is at and it's just that i am very frustrated and i'm dissatisfied with uh, it, I'm dissatisfied with the fact that Greta marketed as the number one feminist film director. Like, she is the woman at this point. You know, is that fair to say? Yeah, she's talked about that way in like her generation of directors who became big in the in the 2010s. She's sort of like the woman of that group. Yeah, and like I don't, you know, it, it is frustrating to me. This movie wants me to take it, and it's very. There's just not. A lot there and the stuff that is there, reductive and old-fashioned and i i wish that like you know i, I wish we were talking about like lizzie borden or cheryl Dunyer. you know it's it's possible to make feminist cinema and fun to watch um and i think that this just kind of it doesn't do that for me uh politically you know like it, it's kind of it's just it's not sitting well with me mm-hmm mm-hmm I, I think I'm sort of fundamentally on the other side of the fence. And as we were talking about the thing with, you know, Ken and horses, I, I, I mean, I don't think that was just a non sequitur. I, I, I think that was on purpose. No. But I, I also think about a lot of the other stuff with Ken and yeah, like fur clothes and, 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 you know, Hummers. And I, I, I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of thought that goes into the, the, the things that the Ken version of patriarchy has going on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my my overall take on both these movies, I think Oppenheimer is better. <laughs> it, I, I, I really, I, I, there are a lot of things I love about Barbie, and I think it is overall a very good movie. But Oppenheimer is such a t- it, it, it's it, it's tight as a drum. There, there's like, even though there are things to complain about as you're watching it, you it never loses you. And again, I think the ending of Barbie feels 
kind of disastrous in some ways not just not just that last line which i have mixed feelings on but like the you know Mm -hmm. the resolution of the story and i think uh again you know sasha calls barbie a fascist barbie land is a fascist state it's a state where the kens can't vote and can't own property and all these things yeah um and and it ends in a way that returns to that and I think there was thought that went into that because, again, the idea is that Barbie mm-hmm. has to leave Barbie land. But I just think, like, yeah. it does not. And maybe this is true in a lot of places throughout the movie where, like, it, it clearly has these very interesting thoughts about it. You know, there are, there are all these scenes that are sort of evocative of, like, they want to literally, you know, when, when the Mattel CEOs want to put her in, in, like, the box. And yeah, they, they, I think there are a lot of things mm-hmm. in the movie where you think about it and there's a lot to think about with it. And I like that. But... The overall thing with Barbie is, I think, even though I'm very positive on it, it has that thing of, like, someone with completely opposite views. Like, like anyone from any side of the spectrum could sort of imprint their own values onto it. Yeah. And I, I don't like movies that are like that. But I like movies yeah. that give me questions and give me lots of things to interpret and make me want to watch them again and see them in a new light. And I do feel that way about Barbie. Um I, I think Gerwig and Nolan are both accomplished directors up to that point, and these are these films are mm-hmm. huge steps forward for both of them. Um, I think Oppenheimer is easily Nolan's best. I think I think Barbie is easily yep. Gerwig's best. Um, yeah, I'm interested to see where they go from here. I think it's a good thing that they're successful. Oppenheimer is is uh, probably uh, quite a bit better at the end of the day. I think it's a very fruitful movie to talk about and dissect. I don't want to discredit that at all. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm curious where she goes from here. I'm, you know, this is only her third movie she's directed, I think, right? Like it's it's her fourth. There's maybe you... a short film. No, she she and Joe Swanberg co-directed Nights and Weekends, so it's it's her third solo. Okay, but yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very I'm very curious where she goes because she probably will be like a big studio person. You know, she's never really been like independent. Uh, you know, like yeah. really. Yeah, her um, her ambition so... is to be like a. To kind of do the Nolan thing of doing like one for them, one for me. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very interested. I feel like I have a relatively good idea of where Nolan will go, but uh, Gerwig is kind of up in the air. Yeah, um, I know Gerwig is is in talks to do a Narnia movie uh, with Netflix, which will be a totally different mm-hmm. direction for her. But, it, I, you know, I mean, everything. so... Her last couple movies, like like both Little Women and Barbie, they're sort of a did we really need that? And she ended up coming in with her own take. So I'm sure yeah. she has some kind of take on Nardia. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have never... This Famously, I said I didn't have Barbies. I never read Little Women. Never mm. seen more than of Narnia. So I'm, I'm a fresh slate, Greta. Show me what you can do. Show me what you got. And Nolan, as I said, doesn't start working on the next thing until the last thing is done. So it'll probably be yeah. after the strike before we know that. Yeah, but I, I, I'm yeah. I'm excited to see that, you know, I think Gerwig will have a, a long career with many ups and downs and, you know, studio mm-hmm. movies and more more personal stuff and all that. Oppenheimer is such a is, is such a creative leap for Nolan in terms of its subjectivity and the, you know it's 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 packaging and the amount of thought that goes into it i am very interested to see if he continues down this train and has like a a really exciting run or if he continues to do this back and forth thing where his next thing is another action movie and then he does another drama Mm, yeah 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 yeah. well sam 
this has been an illuminating conversation. Uh, lots of lots of great thoughts. I always love to have you. I always love to be on. I love to chat with you about movies and television and all of it. Absolutely. Thank you to everyone who has been listening. It's probably been a pretty long episode. We appreciate it. <laughs> um, if you like the show, you can subscribe or rate or follow or whatever, wherever you're listening to it. Um, you can also share it with your friends. Let people know you like the show. That's one of the best things you can do. Next time, we will be talking about the song of the summer, Planet of the Bass by DJ Crazy Times. Oh, Slay. I'm excited to listen to that one. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. I disagree.